Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Young Turks, and Willie Rich. Here's a shocker. Bill O'Reilly of the Fox News Channel was outraged. An irresponsibly lenient judge had let a child rapist off practically scot-free. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thanks for watching us tonight. Kids are Americans, too. That is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. I have one simple question because, as you know, I am a simple guy. If a man confessed to raping two American women, adults, do you believe that man would be sentenced to probation anywhere in this country? The answer, of course, is no. That wouldn't happen because if it did, every women's group, every media outlet would demand the removal of the judge. Yet in Ohio, a man who confessed to orally raping a five-year-old boy and an 11-year-old boy over and over was sentenced to probation by Judge John Connor. O'Reilly concluded that Connor was unfit for service on the bench. And the next thing you know, both the governor of Ohio, Republican Robert Taft, and the state's attorney general were calling for impeachment. Only problem was, and here's another shocker, O'Reilly had the story completely wrong. The defendant never pleaded guilty to rape, and there were further inaccuracies, as Franklin County, Ohio, Common Pleas Judge Connor himself explains. Well, for one thing, they make probation sound like, or he made it sound like this guy was walking the street. That wasn't true. He was on house arrest. He wasn't permitted to go outside his house except for either reporting to the probation officer, which he did once a week, or for treatment. You know, he wanted to traumatize his viewers and make it sound as horrible as he could so they would be outraged, and obviously he, he accomplished his purpose. What happened to you in the ensuing days and weeks? First of all, I couldn't talk, you know, because it was still a pending case. But the mischaracterizations or misrepresentations, which basically Mr. O'Reilly started, were starting to be picked up by the local press. So I felt compelled at some point to get on at least straight out the public record. At one point, you ordered up a transcript of the hearing testimony from psychologists in the case to refresh your memory, a transcript that was available to the press. But did the press, in reporting the story, ever actually go to the uh, source? My court reporter said she got many calls for the transcript, and she didn't know who they were, or some of them might have been media. She wasn't specific, but she said as soon as she told them the price, uh, they said, forget it, and nobody ordered. The Columbus Dispatch did order it and did pay for it. And by the way, as soon as they had it, wrote a very good, fair, and accurate article about the case. So uh, you get out of your car one day, and it turns out Fox News has staked out your house. What was that like? Well, they started asking me questions. Isn't it true you could have sentenced him to 10 years? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. Uh, why don't you talk to us? And then I said, well, because you never tell the truth. And they said, well, tell me what we didn't tell the truth about. And I said, about anything. And then and I got in my car and left. So uh, let me ask you this. You went through this ordeal yeah. for exercising your judicial discretion in a case in which you were substantially hamstrung as to what to do, actually. Does this not make you think twice about any kind of decision that would smack of leniency? Not at all. Uh, let me just tell you this. I had 24 sentencings yesterday, and the press was there with cameras, and I didn't do anything any different than I didn't normally do. And if I were going to do something different, I would certainly do it with the press there. 
Do you think that your colleagues on the bench in Ohio have nothing further to fear from uh, talk show hosts and politicians eager to make hay out of a kind of populist issue like judicial leniency? Nobody has to fear Mr. O'Reilly. I think his credibility is zip. And in terms of this impeachment, uh, I don't think it will ever happen again. I think we can get a positive out of this. I think the separation of powers, the legislative, executive, and the judicial is safe now and for some time to come. Well, Judge Connor, thank you very much. Thank you. John Connor is a common police court judge in Franklin County, Ohio. Though he believes his media martyrdom freed his colleagues and successors from fear, not everyone agrees. Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Thomas J. Moyer says cable TV crucifixions cannot but inhibit judges from handing down potentially unpopular decisions. I heard, it was secondhand, but I heard from a judge that essentially if, if you think this threat of impeachment or removal doesn't have an effect on the sentencing that's going to occur tomorrow or the next day, you're wrong. And that's very unfortunate. Now, hopefully that gets washed away eventually because we, we avoided a real collision here. But I think there's no question that if the judge here had been removed from office, there's no question that judges would have feared that in a very tangible way. Ohio Chief Justice Thomas J. Moyer is a member of Justice at Stake, a Washington, D.C.-based public interest group promoting judicial independence. That group's executive director is Bert Brandenburg, who says that the Republicans' current fixation on the supposedly out-of-control judiciary is just the latest such cycle in the nation's long political history. Well, there's certainly nothing new about criticizing judges, and they shouldn't be above criticism. They're public servants, and they have to be accountable for their work. And if you look historically through American history, you see cycles in which courts have come under more attack, and we happen to be in one of those cycles right now. However, what's different these days is that there is an outrage industry out there that seeks to, number one, perpetuate this cycle, and number two, really try to redefine what people think about courts by distorting their work. You get the emotional gut-wrenching situation where there's a criminal case usually, and either someone has committed a horrible crime or they're accused of committing a horrible crime, and the judge didn't, quote-unquote, make the right decision, and essentially you try to turn the judge into the villain, and you try to make them look like they're as out of the mainstream as you can. In order for these appeals to the public to work properly and for the outrage to be incited, it seems to me that whoever the broadcaster is has to you know, leave out all of the nuance and backstory and mitigating circumstances that cause the judge to render whatever decision he or she rendered to begin with. Unfortunately, the work of the courts is amongst the most vulnerable parts of professional life to distortion through compression in the sense that the more you leave out what led to the decision you don't like, the more you truly distort what happened in the first place. And you don't really expect a cable newscaster to sit there and read a decision out loud of the Supreme Court. And so as a result, you have situation after situation where somebody doesn't like the decision. You never hear a word about how it got there. There's some good news in the sense that the Internet is available to post decisions for people who have a chance to go to read them. However, since most people get most of their news from cable and local TV, you get this three to five second version or maybe a minute or two on just how angry people are about the decision. And then you move on and all you think is that this judge must be sitting around figuring out how to screw over the American people.
your organization is called Justice at Stake. Uh, is it really? I mean, what are the consequences of this kind of outrage inciting? There are three ways in which these attacks, I think, can be particularly harmful to the courts. One is that you're essentially setting up a situation where you're demonizing and undercutting the legitimacy of the courts in the eyes of the public. You're also trying to intimidate judges by calling for their impeachment or, if you can't impeach them, trying to get decisions made that would be different if there wasn't public pressure. And then finally, this does lead to attempts to overturn checks and balances by simply stripping power from the courts. We actually saw an interesting case study last year with the Shibo case. And that actually had, from this perspective, a reasonably happy ending. I'm not talking about the underlying issue of what to do with Terry Shibo's situation, but you had this incredible overreaching that the media, which dwelt on the case for three to four weeks, it was kind of wall-to-wall coverage, emboldened interest groups to press Congress and the president to the point where it became the law of the United States. And it was only because of the reaction by the American people saying, no, don't do this, that you had this correcting factor. It's not that it was the media's fault, but if it hadn't been for the media's role in the Shivo case, I'd be very surprised if the Shivo law would have been signed in the first place. There's another cable TV phenomenon I want to ask you about, because it seems similar, if not directly related to what we've been discussing. And that is this pro-prosecution, demonize the defendant, cable talk programming that focuses on criminal cases around the country, Nancy Grace and the like. Tell me what this does to the climate for judicial independence. Well, cable TV is a very populist medium, and populism is often used to target in particular criminal cases so that judges are constantly seen as non-populist. Unaccountable is the accusation, and in the populist frame, the idea of balancing independence and accountability doesn't really enter the picture. You're just mad about that latest decision, and look how outrageous the conduct of the defendant was. In terms of the impact on the independence of the courts, the great fear is that if you get more and more cable hosts and radio hosts and others competing to be the angriest at the courts in order to get the best ratings, that at some point you either get judges intimidated or you get Congress or a state legislature feeling emboldened that they can actually start stripping powers away from the courts. You know, courts should be able to survive some hazing and some inaccurate and unfair commentary. That's fine. But if it gets to a certain level where it's so constant, then there is a risk down the road that it will lead to a weakening in the power of the courts. What would you do about this, counselor? You know, put a muzzle on Bill O'Reilly or what? Well, this is America. Nobody needs to be muzzled. However, judges can do more to speak out. They are famously shy to do so. Bar associations and bar leaders who know what's going on and who are often respected, law school deans can speak out. But there's a case to be made here for old-fashioned civic education. If you teach more and more people about how the courts actually work, they are less likely to be susceptible to these types of attack, essentially watering down the ground in advance. Ten to 20 years from now, a generation from now, we're more likely to have a citizenry that's less receptive to these type of demagogic attacks. Well, Bert, thank you very much. Absolutely. Glad to do it. Bert Brandenburg is executive director of the Justice at Stake campaign, a nonpartisan advocacy group in Washington, D.C. I do know one thing. American kids these days are targets. They have few defenders in the press, no political clout, and a society that is not engaged in protecting them. Factor viewers and listeners are the only national group that I know of looking out for the kids.
All right, now uh, let me give you the exact numbers that Ben's talking about, the low numbers, uh, and they are low when you, especially when you look, look at them in, in, the in the specific demographic that we're talking about. It's not, uh, this is not all the people watching Oberman or Zahn or O'Reilly. This is just the uh, 25 to 54 year olds. But again, this is in the crazy TV world, the only people that count. Uh, it's another thing I love, just real quick, by the way, the 25, 54 year old demographic. When I was 25, there wasn't a 54 year old person in the country I had anything in common with. Nothing. I, one, I didn't have any money. Two, I didn't have any kids or a wife or any grandkids or, you know, eczema, you know, or any desire to take every drug that's ever offered. I mean, you know, 20, 54-year-olds watch Jeopardy. I, mean, I watch Jeopardy, but I mean, the ads directed, or, you know, they're all drug. It's just weird. We have just assumed that TV people uh, for 100 years or for 50 years know exactly what they're talking about. But I, I don't know why. I, I, don't, I, I couldn't. Yeah, disagree with that assumption more. I'm with you. Yeah. Of course not. TV people don't know anything. What is 25 to 54? What the hell is 25 18 to 54? 18 to 49. My dad is 69. He has 10 times the earning power he had when he was 53, let alone when he was 27, when he had nothing. 18 to 49. 18. to a, That's 18 and a 50-year-old. Come on. Yeah, it doesn't make Other sense. Other than the 47-year-old guy wanting to have sex with an 18-year-old girl, they have nothing in common. Now, let me give you the numbers. Uh... <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Oberman, I will acknowledge that's funny. <laughs> Oberman has 164,000 people in that demographic. Uh, Zahn has 158,000, so he's past her. O'Reilly still has 450,000, so he's still tripling Oberman. So it's not like uh, mission accomplished, land on the Abraham Lincoln, what that's the, it, we beat him. Oberman's at how many thousand? 164,000. And Zahn's at what? 158. So you put them together, they're at about 320, and, and O'Reilly's at four. 50. Yeah, so he's so still, he's still beating both of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, but the reason to bring all of this up is because once you, they go up 41%, what do TV executives, right or wrong, do? That's true. They yeah. will definitely take that as a sign of this is the one rare thing we have working at MSNBC. That's true. Why is it working? Clearly, it's because he's opposed to the president, and that is actually that is true. Mm -hmm. That is undoubtedly true. And they will go on and hire more liberal hosts rather than hiring more conservative hosts. And then you get a balanced conversation. Oh, I, I mean, I want the balanced conversation. That's that. There's no, no one's gonna, no one's gonna agree with that more. Let's get one call here in uh, in front of the break here. Let's talk to line one, Gary in Nebraska. What's up, Gary? How are you? You know, just a real quick point. You know, I, I drive a truck all over the country. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the things that I'm noticing more and more and more truck stops I stop. They used to have Fox on all the time, and my company, I drive for a liberal com or a conservative company out of Nebraska also, in every one of their lounges and stuff, it was always Fox on. Now, many of them are starting to switch over to CNN, and gross as it may seem, you go in the restroom on the walls and stuff, the graffiti more and more is negative, negative uh, uh, the Republicans. Hey, you know, oh, right. Gary, that's actually, uh, that warms my heart, because as, <laughs> as the restrooms and truck stops go, so goes the country. Young girls. We're talking to Charlie Daggett from CBS about uh, what has happened in Iraq over the uh, last three years. Have you got a question, by the way, 879-WGAN, 879 Nine four two six. Were you you were you were right there at the beginning, right? Didn't it seems to me you ended up like outrunning the U.S. forces. Well, we it was at a time when the invasion took place that we had to decide. I had to decide anyway, and there were only a handful of us in there. 
whether we were going to get out and get embedded. It, it got to the point where it was too late. We couldn't go from Baghdad because it was too dangerous. We couldn't go from Baghdad to, say, Kuwait and then get with the military. So essentially, we waited for the military to come to us. And, and certainly the most dangerous or perilous situation I found myself in was during the war itself, and I was with Dan Rather, I could say it now, <laughs> we weren't so much saying it when he was still active and working. We were in, uh, it was at nightfall, uh, the, the invasion was only 10 days old, we were in Ramadi uh, and headed toward Fallujah, and these names we now know, but back mm. then we knew them, but hardly anybody had heard of Ramadi and Fallujah, and we got pinned down by Iraqi uh, Republican guards. And, and we hadn't seen any U.S. forces at all since, since the invasion began. So there we were in the middle of what has now become, you know, the Sunni central. And we were uh, demanded at gunpoint, get out of your cars. We were at a we were checkpoint. Uh, it was nightfall. We spoke to CENTCOM. CENTCOM said, whatever you do, do not go to Ramadi. We were already in Ramadi. We had the option of either staying there, which we weren't going to do because we were coming under, under attack. We couldn't drive back to the Jordanian border. That just seemed uh, senseless because it would have been a 10-, 12-hour drive in the dark during a war. And we had another hour and a half to get to Baghdad uh, with the hope of finding U.S. forces. Uh, the, the, I would never, <laughs> I would never, ever want to do that again. It, was, it was sounds that, exciting was, now. Was Dan was Rather never, with you in the car? Yeah. And what did he we do? Had, did, he, did he start to cry? <laughs> he had a good cry. But I, I, do, I do remember uh, that I, I stood in the desert, and we had maybe five cars with us. Only one of them was armored. You can guess who was in that one. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> hmm. See, what I would have done, see, what I would have done, Charlie, and I'm surprised you didn't think of this, is offer up uh, Dan Rather as a, uh, as like a sacrifice, you know, say, he's big time, get after him, you don't, I'm a cameraman, you don't want me. And the, and the thought had crossed my mind, I thought, isn't this insane, are they risking Dan Rather's life, don't you know who we're with? I thought, well, you know, drop the, drop the Dan Rather card, see if that would get us out. Throw him to the uh, But I'll tell you what, he was, he was unflappable, I've, I've been with him uh, in in Afghanistan and, and several uh, hairy situations in Iraq, and the guy just he's a rock, and uh, he doesn't he was he was not worried about that at all. Uh, some say to a fault. I heard one of the producers say, you know, do not let him drive this forward because. Uh, you know, it is dangerous, and uh, but a lot, a lot of people don't know this about him. But he he can actually kill people with his hands. <laughs> skill he has. I'll tell you what, though, it's funny. We got to the uh, boy. I'm I'm certainly telling rumors out of school here, but the U.S. military was none too happy that we did this thing because you were either embedded with the U.S. military or you weren't, and if you weren't then they had no responsibility to look after you, to protect you. Not that they didn't, but they didn't have any official responsibility. So here we come in, crashing in the next morning. We finally meet the Marines in Fallujah, and we said, look, you know, CBS, they said, well, who, who are you with? And we said, well, you know, we're not attached to anybody. Uh, well, I'm sorry, you can't go any further. I said, well, we can't stay out here. You know, we've got to get into the Palestine uh, Hotel. That's where all the journalists were. It was the only safe place. None of them would let us through. 
we had to keep pulling Dan out of the car. And I'll tell you, as soon as that happened, and bridges were opening. We got tank escorts. It was amazing. He's got a lot of respect in the U.S. military. <laughs> that is an amazing story. Rose is in Portland. Rose, you got a question for Charlie? Do you? Well, in this new in this new operation swarmed. Yeah. I'm wondering, did they have any reporters embedded there and cameramen? All I've seen are military photos. In spe- specifically with this uh, new offensive, the Operation Swarmer, um, yeah. are there still plenty of U.S. journalists embedded? She thinks she's only seen sort of the view from the military. I'll expand that a little bit to say, what do you think of this embedded business? Does it really give us back here in the States a, a free, objective look at what's going on? Well, uh, during the time of, of a you know full-blown invasion, uh, I think it does give uh, a glimpse and, and and i think you know we we weren't at the times that i was working with the u.s military so it may not be as balanced as it should be and you you raise an interesting question about this operation swarmer if that's what they're calling it uh you there aren't many uh american journalists embedded in that um in that group or in this in this recent operation and it came as something of a surprise uh, even to us, and I'm pretty pretty connected uh, in Iraq, and uh, I, I think it smells a little bit. I'm not exactly sure, you know, when they, they talked about the, the largest uh, uh, aerial assault, that's helicopters. It, when you say aerial assault, it kind of brings to mind jets and, and uh, fighter jets and, and bombers. Helicopters, they're, they're pretty involved, but it's not quite the same grand um, uh, operation, military operation, as it sounds. Uh, Samara itself is not that large. Uh, I, I think there's probably a good reason to start rooting out, uh, if you want to call it insurgents or terrorists in that area. But I, I do question why there there hasn't been uh, more transparency, I guess. In spe- specifically with this uh, new offensive, the Operation Swarmer, um, yeah. are there still plenty of U.S. journalists embedded? She thinks she's only seen sort of the view from the military. I'll expand that a little bit to say, what do you think of this embedded business? Does it really give us back here in the States a, a free, objective look at what's going on? Well, uh, during the time of, of a you know full-blown invasion, uh, I think it does give uh, a glimpse and, and and i think you know we we weren't at the times that i was working with the u.s military so it may not be as balanced as it should be and you, you raise an interesting question about this operation swarmer if that's what they're calling it uh you there aren't many uh american journalists embedded in that um in that group or in this in this recent operation and it came as something of a surprise uh, even to us, and I'm pretty pretty connected uh, in Iraq, and uh, I, I think it smells a little bit. I'm not exactly sure, you know, when they, they talked about the, the largest uh, uh, aerial assault, that's helicopters. It, when you say aerial assault, it kind of brings to mind jets and, and uh, fighter jets and, and bombers. Helicopters, they're, they're pretty involved, but it's not quite the same grand um, uh, operation, military operation, as it sounds. Uh, Samara itself is not that large. Uh, I, I think there's probably a good reason to start rooting out, uh, if you want to call it insurgents or terrorists in that area. But I, I do question why there, there hasn't been uh, more transparency, I guess.
on the media. I'm Bob Garfield. This week marks the three-year anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq, which, of course, for the press means three years of covering the war in Iraq, a difficult but exciting job in the best of circumstances and an extremely dangerous and thankless job in what has proven to be the worst of circumstances. Starting this week through the end of the month, Reuters is displaying on its Times Square ticker the names of the 67 journalists killed in Iraq. In this past week alone, three Iraqi journalists have been shot and killed, and Christian Science Monitor reporter Jill Carroll remains captive. The press has done a far from perfect job in Iraq, but there is no denying the nobility under the most extreme conditions of trying to find truth from those not necessarily willing to provide it. We listened back to the show we aired three years ago this week and decided to replay Brooks' interview about the history of war reporting with historian Philip Knightley. In 1854, a London Times reporter named William Howard Russell became a star as the first famous war correspondent with this account of the British Light Cavalry Brigade against Russian gunners in Crimea. At 10 minutes past 11, our light cavalry brigade advanced. They swept proudly past, glittering in the morning sun in all the pride and splendor of war. With a halo of steel above their heads, and with a cheer which was many a noble fellow's death cry, they flew into the smoke of the batteries. But ere they were lost from view, the plain was strewn with their bodies. Through the clouds of smoke we could see their sabers flashing as they rode between the gunners as they stood. At 35 minutes past 11, not a single British soldier, except the dead and the dying, was left in front of the Muscovite guns. Russell was seen as the first practitioner of a great tradition, war reporting. But when he looked back on it all, Russell called himself the miserable parent of a luckless tribe. The reason for that gloomy assessment can be glimpsed in a remark made by U.S. Senator Hiram Johnson in 1917. He said, the first casualty when war comes is truth. Philip Knightley is author of the classic study of the foreign correspondent, The First Casualty. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. So why, when summing up his career, did Russell call himself the miserable parent of a luckless tribe? I think he foresaw what was going to happen to that tribe. He, he foresaw that they would become, in their own way, uh, propagandists for the government of the day. The military, who didn't like war correspondents right from the beginning didn't want Russell along covering the charge of the Light Brigade because it brought home to a reading public, a, gr a greatly growing reading public, the horrors of warfare. And it already began to change during Russell's career. Yes, uh, by the time that uh, Russell was finished with the Crimea and moved off to the American Civil War, the power of the press with its war reporting had brought down the government in Britain and infuriated all the generals who up until then had reported their own wars. Brought down the government in Britain? Yes, the reports about the inefficiency of the uh, supply requirements of the army, about the way that uh, soldiers were left lying untreated, wounded on the battlefield, that led to Florence Nightingale going over to the Crimea in order to help these soldiers, uh, brought down the government of the day. Well, let's skip past the charge of the Light Brigade to the American Civil War. Now, the coverage there should have been extraordinary. Suddenly, reporters had access to this astounding new communications technology, the telegraph. But you write that it was covered miserably. Yes, because already we can sense a certain corruption creeping in the way reporters reported. 
uh, they began to realize their power. They began to charge various officers uh, sums of money to give them a puff in the press, as they said. But was that all? Was it simply that the reporters were after personal gain, or was there the politics of nations getting in the way? Well, a lot was beginning to creep in. Politicians began to realize that uh, nations fight uh, as its people think, and that you can manipulate the way people think in wartime by clever manipulation of the war correspondents themselves. Now, the twin forces of propaganda and censorship acquired a very modern efficiency during the First World War. Um, could you set the scene? The scene was that the military by now, alarmed uh, in the latter part of the 19th century at the power that war correspondents were uh, displaying, revolted against having war correspondents around at all. And the, they announced that uh, with the British Expeditionary Force to France to fight Germany, they would allow only five war correspondents, and they sort of incorporated them into the army. They said, you can come if you can ride a horse, and that you will be given uh, all the status of, say, a captain, and that you will have a batman and a driver and a personal censor, and we will show you what we think you should see. So you've got none of the horrors of the First World War, you've got none of the slaughter of the trenches. They said it's been a glorious day for Britain today, when in fact something like 100,000 people, 100,000 soldiers have been killed in, in one battle alone. Now, that was a war when reporters signed on to the cause. They were committed to the Allied victory. But during the Spanish Civil War, there was a division between governments and among the press over who was right. There was no objectivity. There wasn't any middle ground. And most of the reporters sided with the Republicans. Uh, they saw the uh, fight there, the Republican government against the insurgents led by fascist General General Franco, as being the beginnings of um, what later on became the Second World War. Rumbling eastward this week from Aragon toward the sea in the mightiest offensive since the World War is the mechanized army of Spanish rebel General Francisco Franco. Tanks from the great German firm of Krupp, bombers from Italy's Caproni, Italian armored trucks, German heavy artillery, a crushing juggernaut that blasts its way through every loyalist defense on toward the loyalist industrial center and seaport of Barcelona. They saw the great battle developing between democracy and fascism and felt that the Spanish uh, Republican army deserved to win. And with the stakes so high, the first casualty is truth principle kicked in with a vengeance. And the reporters actively slanted their stories. They even made things up, both the pro-Republicans and the pro-fascists. Yes. I mean, I can give you a good example of making things up. The denial of the bombing of Guernica. This was a bombing carried out by German planes working, uh, fighting with the Franco-fascists. Immortalized uh, in the Picasso painting. Indeed. There was a concerted move by the propagandists for the Franco side to make certain that the public got the view that this was an entirely invented story by pro-Republican reporters and that uh, what really happened there was simply that the people of Guernica had destroyed the town themselves in order to blame the uh, German bombers for what had occurred. On the... Uh pro-Republican side. You spend a fair amount of time on the journalist Claude Coburn, who is a fine writer, but you saw his Spanish war coverage as a disaster. He admits himself that on one occasion he sat down with a Comintern officer and a map of a town so as to make certain that they got the uh, details right, and they totally invented a battle, which was won by the gallant Republican army against uh, the hordes of fascists who had been storming them. He became so attached to what he felt was the right side that he lied in order to put that side in the best possible light. 
You quote him telling his wife, with regard to the public's right to the truth, he said, Who gave such a right? Perhaps when they have exerted themselves enough to alter the policy of their bloody government and the fascists are beaten in Spain, they will have such a right. This isn't an abstract question. It's a shocking war. Yes, that, that is, sums up very well the way that he felt about it. Later on, other correspondents have said that they feel that the uh, public right to know uh, and the public right to objective or fair reporting can come back when the war is over. But in the meantime, it's necessary to win the war. What about the coverage of World War II, the good war? From the standpoint of journalism, was it as good as all that? No, I mean, I quote at the end of that chapter, a Canadian war correspondent who'd been working for uh, one of the big news agencies is saying, looking back after the war was over, he was appalled at what he'd written. He said, we weren't, even, we weren't reporters, we weren't even historians, we were just propagandists for the Western side. Uh, that, but you see, the, the, in a war of national survival, it's very easy to get the journalist on side. You don't want to be accused of doing anything that might uh, inhibit your government from winning what you and they consider to be a just war. Departing almost to a split second on the right time on a plan which they've been working and sweating and slaving at for months. The sky now is full of the noise of these paratroop planes as they circle the aerodrome before they take their course. But just as they're circling in the air, so the others that are waiting to go are circling the track of the aerodrome. Their lights moving around in a stately, steady procession. Aboard them are some of the toughest and finest and bravest men that we have in Britain. And they go out today to face their greatest trial. At least the Germans avoided the hypocrisy of the Allied side, where the Allies pretended that these war correspondents were writing the truth and writing impartial reports and fair reports, the Germans simply uh, herded all the war correspondents into a, a semi-army unit called a propaganda company and told them what to write. Let's jump ahead to Vietnam. Now, that was the first time when reporters were actually accused of helping to hand victory to the enemy. Did they? The American military certainly believed that's the case. Um, I don't know what aberration occurred in the military mind in the, in the Pentagon in, during the Vietnam War, but some aberration did occur because they decided they would trust the war correspondents to be on side. I mean, they'd been on side to a large extent in Korea, and they thought they would uh, enjoy the same support from the press uh, as they'd enjoyed there. So they just handed them on a platter, a card that said, uh, you can go anywhere you want. We will help you get there. We will provide you with rations when you are there, and you can write anything you like. But we'll rely on you and your good sense and your as your patriotic duty to write the story as you see it. Well, it worked for a while because most American war correspondents there did feel that the war was a just one, but they began to object to the way in which the war was being waged. The long, wearying, and oftentimes baffling war against communist rebels in South Vietnam swung sharply toward a new crisis today. For the first time in the years-long struggle, the scene of action has shifted from the jungles and rice paddies to the sea and involved naval craft instead of guerrilla fighters. Hard on the heels of an attack Sunday and in the face of a warning from Washington, North Vietnamese torpedo boats opened an attack on two United States destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin today. The public back in the United States learnt uh, the full truth about body counts and they learnt the truth about assassination squads and they learnt the truth about uh, the deaths of innocent people. They learnt the truth about various American atrocities. 
And this this so sickened uh, the viewer and the reader that they lost the will to continue the war. War reporting changed after Vietnam, didn't it? Yes, it changed amazingly um, for the worse. <laughs> what happened was that military chiefs all over the world looked at, at Vietnam and thought, what lessons can we learn from this? And at a conference held in the Royal United Services Institute in London, in 1975, I think it was, uh, attended by representatives of the Pentagon, the Ministry of Defense here, and a number of senior journalists, the question of, can we ever again allow color television cameras or any television cameras uh, on the battlefield again and to cover a war no matter how just that war might be? And the conclusion was a resounding no. So from that moment on, the Pentagon and the Ministry of Defense worked on uh, a plan to manage the media in wartime. Uh, and it turned out to be a very simple but very effective plan. Uh, the military now controls access to the war, and nobody is allowed there unless the military takes you or allows you to go. Grenada, Panama, yeah. and, and the Gulf. And the Gulf. Uh, we've been receiving some late reports from Baghdad that it appears airports and military installations near the Iraqi <coughs> capital have been hit. Uh, what, what do you say about that? This, is, this strikes me as an orderly way of shutting a country down. We are making war at all of Saddam's most important war-making capacities. The one thing I am not hearing is that we are not apparently making war on the innocent civilians. The military made it very difficult for war reporters to get to the front to see what was happening. They were taken on little conducted tours that were uh, with the pool system, which all journalists hate, pool system being a group of reporters that are selected or self-selected, uh, and they are required to report for the whole of the media. And they're, take, they're conducted where the uh, military thinks it's safe to let them go, and they're censored. The major American media organizations objected to this and considered bringing an action while the war was on claiming that this infringes their right of freedom of expression. But then their own rivalry with, uh, among themselves led to the abandonment of that, and only the nation continued it, and by the time that the, they would have got a decision, the war was over. But the judge did rule that there was a case to answer. Well, what about the coverage of Kosovo? There was plenty of reporting there that didn't suit government policy. There were some on-the-scene accounts. Was that finally good, unimpeded reporting? Well, the, the, we're getting into a real minefield here about what is good unimpeded reporting. Before the reporters got there, the, the government uh, justification for what, the, what was happening uh, had so demonized the Serbs that it became very difficult for any reporter uh, not to join the mainstream stories of Serb atrocities. A lot of the war correspondents, mostly young and inexperienced, the quick story to do was, I witnessed an atrocity today, or I've, I've discovered another mass grave. And they were known among um, the various independent interpreters there as the mass graves correspondents. And so reporting was abundant, but it wasn't any good. Yes, it's quite possible in wartime to say, well, uh, we've been showered, inundated with uh, material, but very little real information. Uh, you had to look around for a, an old uh, Balkans hand who understood the centuries of animosity that led to what had occurred and follow him or her in order to get a, a real idea of what was occurring. 
Your book is studded with stories of, of lucky and courageous correspondents who found themselves in the right place at the right time and managed to get the story through. And a lot of what stood in their way was simply the technology of the era. We have myriad ways to get words from one continent to another and out in front of the public. Shouldn't it be easier now to evade the kinds of obstructions that governments put in front of war reporting? Uh, I mean, satellite phones and uh, position, navigational positioning devices and all that sort of thing make it much, much easier to get the story back. But what is the story? It is not difficult to manage the media in wartime. You deny them access. Uh, you provide them with uh, almost unlimited information, but information that you want to get uh, published. And you denigrate and slander any correspondent who attempts to report the war from the other side. Well, Philip, I must say this has all been very reassuring. <laughs> well, I'm, I know it's not very reassuring, but maybe we'll win through. But I, I, I'm afraid I'm a pessimist about the future of being war correspondents unless there is some major change in the way that the governments and the military view them. Well, thanks very much. A pleasure. Philip Knightley is the author of First Casualty, the war correspondent as hero and mythmaker from the Crimea to Kosovo, now in a new updated edition. Thanks for listening, everybody. No news is good news today, so... I would just like to uh, encourage you to go to the website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Go there to uh, contact the show, uh, me directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or uh, the, uh, you know, me and the audience at large at, uh, at the message board, which you can get to right from the homepage. Also, if you're feeling frisky, Leave me uh, reviews at on on the iTunes Music Store. You can link right to that from the homepage as well, or uh, or vote for me at Podcast Alley. All of that is greatly appreciated. Helps spread the word of the show, and uh, you know, as an audience member, that's really your only job. So, thank you for that, and that's it for today. Have a good one. <laughs>